I've been reading through that, a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Uh, the idea that for this sermon series came from that book. And uh, as I was reading through that this week, and that, that first, few pay, first few chapters, or actually first few uh, paragraphs of that chapter, uh, I just wanted to kind of read what it has to say to us because it gives a great illustration. It says, we live in a blizzard, and a few of us have a rope. The idea came, he said, from this. It was kind of like um, a few years ago. There was, this, there was this thing that came forward, and Parker Palmer wrote a book called uh, Hidden Wholeness. And he relates a story about farmers in the Midwest, right where we're from, who back uh, many, many years ago, when there was a lot of time in extreme blizzards here, which we recently saw, um, they would go out into their backyard to go to their barn in the midst of a blizzard to take care of their animals. And many times what would happen is they would get lost between the house and the barn. Sometimes the blizzard was so extreme that what would happen is uh, they couldn't see their hand in front of their faces literally. And so what happened many times is that they would go out, go to the barn, and get lost between the barn and their backyard, wandered around, and some of them actually froze to death within a few feet of their house, not even knowing how close they were. But what they began to do was that many of them, what they would do is they would tie a rope onto the door of their house. And then they would tie a rope as a blizzard was coming, tied on to the door of the barn. And then they would hold on to the rope, going to both places. They had something to guide them, to help them to get to where they needed to go. And they hoped more than anything else they didn't let go of the rope. Because if they did, their life was in danger. You know, the thing about, about this is this, is that many of us have lost our way spiritually. We're in the whiteout of a blizzard in our lives. And blizzards begin when we say yes to too many things. Uh, between the demands of work and family, the demands of all these things, our lives fall somewhere between full and overflowing. And we multitask and so much that we're sometimes unaware that we are even doing three things at once. I, I was sitting yesterday uh, actually studying uh, for today. I had, my, I had my iPad, I had my laptop, and I had the television on. I was watching golf. You don't have to do a lot of focus to watch golf. But I found myself, and I was studying about, my, I was talking about, and I'm going like, why am I doing this? So I turned off the television, I shut down my laptop, and I just focused on my iPad. Because I said, you know, I, I find myself so often just doing it automatically without even thinking about it. And you do too. We, we can't just sit out and focus on one thing. We've gotten to a habit of doing this over and over and over. And, and so often what it is, we admire people that are able to accomplish so much in so little time or so they seem to do it. They become our role models, and at the same time, while we do that, I can tell you this from talking about it, hearing people that so many people feel overscheduled, they're tense, they're addicted to hurry. You know, there's so there's addicts around. I don't know if if there is actually addiction to hurry that we have to deal with, but there needs to be. And so often, what happens is we're addicted to this frantic, preoccupied, crazy lifestyle that we're in. And so we cram as much as possible into our blackberries and our palm pilots and our day planners and our to-do list, and we battle life to make the best use of every spare minute we have, yet not much changes in our life. 
Our overproductivity becomes counterproductive. We end our days exhausted from, uh, from all of the work in raising family. And then our free time on the weekends, um, it becomes filled with demands from our already overplanned and overstuffed life, uh, lifestyle that we live. And then you come to church and you hear sermons about, uh, uh, sermons and you read books about slowing down and creating margin, you know, all these good things that you want to think about and, We realize we need rest to, to charge our batteries. And, on, and our workplaces offer seminars on increased productivity through replenishing ourselves, but we don't listen to those, and then they push us to do even more work. But we can't stop. It's because of the culture we live in. We live in a culture that pushes this all over and over again. If you read the book of Revelation, it's interesting, because in the book of Revelation, what is culture called? The culture that lived in? It's called the Great Beast. It's not considered something friendly to us. And the culture that we live in is not friendly to us, really. It pushes us in directions that God never intended us to go. And so we go through the motion so often in life and we have this addiction to hurry. It's not a drug. It's, it's not to alcohol. It's to work, to doing, to being, pro, to, to being productive. And we don't have any sense of rhythm in our daily, our weekly, or our yearly lives because we've been swallowed up in this blizzard of activity that we have in our life and we don't have a rope to hold on to. The thing is, we need a rope to lead us home. And that's what we're going to talk about today. How do we have, how does God, what are the things that God wants us to do for us to live the life that he wants us to live, to, to be as the kind of person that we need to be? You know, there's some words that have come up in recent years that, that were never in our vocabulary until the last 10 years. One of them, is, it's the term 24-7. You know, I looked at uh, the, the world's you know, most important dictionary, Wikipedia, and uh, just a joke. And, uh, and, you know, and it said basically the, the roots of that is that 24-7 became something we started using just a few years ago. We started using it as a culture to say, you know, you know, it, it, we, you know businesses that are open 24-7, even, even though basically it's just their website that's open 24-7, and other things, we started using those type of terms. But another term that I just mentioned a while ago is the term multitasking. For some reason, for some reason, we believe that that is a, that is a good thing. And, and, and I, for a long time, had no solid evidence that it, to, to combat that until recently. And there's been study after study done recently about multitasking. And the most recent one, a year ago, from university, from Stanford University, says this about multitasking. Okay, just because it agrees with me doesn't mean it's right, but I believe that it's a good study, okay? It's a highly, highly uh, uh, thought-of study. It says this. A study by a team of researchers at Stanford came out uh, a year ago. The investigators wanted to figure out how today's college students were able to multitask so much more effectively than adults. That was the premise. How, how can they do it so much more effectively than adults? How do they manage to do it, the researchers ask. The answer they discovered, and this is by no means what they expected, is that they don't. The enhanced cognitive abilities the investigators expected to find, the mental faculties that enable people to multitask effectively, were simply not there. In other words, people do not multitask effectively. And here's the really surprising find, finding. The more people, the more that they multitask, the worse that they are at it. Not just at other mental abilities, but at multitasking itself. 
One thing that made the study different from others is that the researchers didn't test people's cognitive functions while they were multitasking. They separated the subject groups into high multitaskers, those who did a lot of things at one time, and low multitaskers. And they used a different set of tests to measure the kind of cognitive abilities involved in multitasking. They found that in every case, the high multitaskers scored worse. They were worse at distinguishing between relevant and irrelevant information and ignoring the latter. In other words, they were more distractible. Duh. Do you not see that in culture? Distractibility of, our, of, a, of a generation. As adults, I'm more distractible now because I multitask too much. They were worse, he says, they were worse at what you might call mental filing, keeping information in the right conceptual boxes and being able to retrieve it quickly. In other words, their minds were more disorganized. And they were even worse at, very, at the very thing that defines multitasking itself, switching between tasks. Multitasking, in short, is not, is not only not thinking, it impairs your ability to think. Thinking means concentrating on one thing long enough to develop an idea about it. Thinking is not learning other people's ideas or memorizing a body of information, however uh, much those may be useful sometimes. Thinking is about developing your own ideas. In short, thinking for yourself. You simply cannot do that in bursts of 20 seconds at a time, constantly interrupted by Facebook messages or Twitter tweets, or fiddling with your iPod or iPad, or watching something on YouTube. You can't do it. But for some reason, our culture says to us this. If you want to study, I'll give you the link to it, okay? And you read the whole thing. That's just a summary of it. The issue is this, is that we live in a culture that says, hey, you need to be doing all these things at the same time. And we have all these people that are frantic. They can't think. They can't focus. Become distractible. I thought it was me. I thought it was just me getting old. No, my excuse now is that I multitask too much and I need to quit doing it. I need to focus my thinking. So don't come to me if you're applying for a job and say, hey, I'm a great multitasker because I'll turn you down. Because it's proven that you can't think, think straight, straight. you got to focus. God wants us to focus. If we, let, me, let me just share this. Let me just share this. You know, this past, this, uh, you know, we, we, we have this, this concept in our world that if we really love somebody, we will, uh, we will spend some time with them, right? But the thing is, is that so often in life, we're kind of like this next, next, let's look at the next slide. This next slide. This is how we, this is how our life looks, looks like. Being with God is this little tiny portion of our life. We do it on Sunday mornings. And maybe if we're really spiritual, we have a quiet time. 15 minutes a day. One day a week. Two days a week. Three days a week. Four days a week. Maybe five or six days a week. But then this other circle called activity fills up the rest of our lives. Now, if you were to look at that circle and that was to define your relationship with God, is that a real true about your time use? Let's just be honest. Probably so. Now, let me, let me take, and I'm not going to do this. I thought about this after the fact, doing it on a slide here. If the other one over there dealt with your, instead of being with God, dealt with being with your spouse... 
And you had this little bitty time that you spend with your spouse. I mean, if you came to my office and you said, I said, I'm having some marital problems. And I said, your issue, uh, this is how you deal with it. What I want you to do is every day I want you to spend the first 15 minutes of every day with your spouse. And then one hour on the weekend or two hours on the weekend I want you to spend with your spouse. That will solve all your problems. That will prove to your spouse that you love them. What would you think about that advice? Come on, you can talk this morning, Okay. How would you think? You think, Pastor, that's the worst advice I've ever heard. 15 minutes in the morning, that's all. Don't talk to them any other time, just 15 minutes in the morning. And then one or two hours on the weekend. You know, if I want to really love my spouse, that's what I'm going to do. Just think about that, how foolish that is as far as information, as far as the concept. But we say that we can love God, and that's all it takes. If we really love him. No wonder our life is kind of disorganized, kind of out of out of whack. The question for me and the question for you, and I have to, this is, this is a confessionals message this morning because I realized as I was looking at this how little of my time I spend really in a relationship with God. And, you know, if we want to love God, if we want to love other people, it flows out. And we're going to have a series starting uh, May 20, uh, not May 20, March 20th called Overflow. The next series we start is talking about how the love we have for other people flows out of our love for God. It's kind of like a fountain. And the thing is, is that so often in life we're so busy, so busy, so busy, we just feel all out of whack in our life and we have all these things going on. Then how do we, what are the things we need to do to spend more time with God in, in, in a in a structured way, because let me tell you about this. I don't know about you guys. No, I do know about you guys. If you don't put it on your calendar and you don't have it on a regular time, you won't do it. Right? I mean, if it doesn't go on your calendar, if you don't have it kind of structured into your life, you don't have a rhythm for doing something, except for eating maybe, um, then you won't do it. But the issue is, is we have to have rhythms in our life. God has created us as people who need rhythms and regular structure in our lives. I mean, Greg, you know, we, you're teaching uh, a financial peace university, some of us. The thing is, he's trying to teach us, you know, if you don't regularly schedule to have a savings, you put a certain amount of money in savings, guess what's going to happen? Just all of a sudden, you go pop money into savings. No, it's never going to happen. You've got to have a rhythm of doing that in your life. You have a regular process of doing that. And so today we want to talk about two spiritual disciplines that God gives to us to help us to have the rhythms in life so that our life won't look like this. All activity and then little tiny being with God. Because if the purpose of life is loving God and loving others, which flows out of loving God, then guess what? You need to spend time loving God more. Spend time in relationship with God. Not just learning about God, but learning who God is, spending time with Him. So I want to share with you today two spiritual disciplines. The first one is something that recently I I knew about, but I hadn't really begun to practice until recently. You know, I grew up in the church, and and in the church they thought if you're a Christian, that one of the things you need to do is you need to have a quiet time with God every day. It starts your morning off with God, and you spend a few minutes, maybe 10, 15 minutes a day, reading Scripture, uh, journaling, and doing a few things with God. And then the, that gives you the replenishment, the, what you need for that day to, uh, to really stick with God. Well, the problem is, is I don't know about you guys, but by lunchtime, I've kind of forgotten about God. I don't do it intentionally, 
But the busyness of the day and all the things that are going on in my life cause me to quit thinking intentionally about God. But there is an ancient practice that started in the early, actually way before the early church, back in the Old Testament. And, and what it's called, it's called the daily office. Now, the word office doesn't mean like a place you go to to work, okay? But the word office comes from a, from a, from a Latin word, opus, that means the work of God. It deals this, the daily work of God. It's God working on us on a daily, daily basis. And, and we see in the Old Testament, even going back, way back into the Old Testament, we see people who did this on a regular basis. I mean, we go back into one of the stories this morning, if you have your Bible. Turn with me over to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. And we're going to look just for a minute at a, at a passage of Scripture that talks about this whole idea of a daily office, this this what we call fixed hour prayer time with God. And, and, and let me just give you a summary in, in, of this up to this point in Daniel. Daniel was a young man who was part of a group of people from Jerusalem who were captured by the Babylonians and taken back to Babylon. And he was a young man, and he grew up in that, in, in the, in that culture, in the Babylonian culture, but he had grown up uh, up to a certain point into his early teenage years. He'd grown up in, in the Jewish culture. He'd become a follower of God. He was, a, he was obviously a strong adherent of his, of his faith. He's somebody who really believed in God. And so what happens is uh, he, he begins, and he has a lot of potential, a lot of drive, a lot of, uh, of ability. And because of a lot of circumstances, what I don't have time to talk about today, but you can read in the first five chapters of Daniel, you will see that what it is, he rose in prominence in the kingdom. And, and in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar, who was... Uh, the king at that time in Babylon, and, and he became a person who was, who was well thought of. Now, the issue was, though, is this. He was an outsider. He had been brought in. He was one of, he was one of those people who had been brought in who had been captured by the, by the Babylonians. And so he came in and he rose to prominence in the kingdom. And guess what that did with all the homeboys? They were so happy that he was there. No, they were jealous of him because he rose to prominence. He was able to do things they couldn't do. He could interpret dreams uh, of the king that they couldn't do. And because of this, these, these, these guys that had grown up there in Babylon who were in the government, they, they began to ask some questions and they began to say, how in the world can we, how in the world can we get rid of this, this Daniel guy? And so they came up with this intricate plan. They said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to convince the king to put up a giant statue of himself and make everybody worship that statue. And what we'll do is that if we know that Daniel, they knew this from a fact, Daniel won't do it. And so we can catch him and then we can get him out of the way. And so we read, read in chapter 6 of, of, of the, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, we read how this happens in the first few verses, and it basically says that he, the, the, uh, these, these lower-level administrators, what they did is they convinced the king to do this. And he, they convinced him to put in the writing that anybody that would not do this, would not bow down to the statue of the king, what they would do is that they must be thrown into the lion's den. And those of you who grew up in church know the story. It's a story we teach kids all the time, Right? Daniel in the lion's den. And then we read in verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. 
And then it says this. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed just as he had done before. You see, Daniel's rope that he grabbed a hold of in a time of need was a process of being with God on a daily basis. Not just once a day, not just twice a day, but it says three times a day. Morning, noon, and evening. He would get with God. He had a regular process, it said, in his life of getting with God. Of being connected to God. And so when crisis came, he had a rope to hold to. When the blizzards of life came, he had a rope to hold to. Do you? See, that was his process. This daily office, this daily fixed hour prayer, it wasn't just a procedure. You know, somebody said to me one time this, and, and, and I believe it's true. If we as Christians had the same commitment to a regular, ongoing relationship with God that Muslims do, it would affect their life in huge ways. I think I shared with you that back when they were doing construction, that I shared with you that they were doing construction on this road out here. You know, they're doing all the all the all the paving out here on on 116 earlier this this past summer. Um, one day, the strangest thing happened here at Great Oaks. One day, as we were here in the office, uh, I don't know if it's Stacy or Lisa was here that day, but here this 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 man came into the office and asked, and he was a Muslim. And he came to a Christian church and he asked, he said, I'm out here working on the road and I need a place for my, for my midday prayers. Do you mind if I go out under your, it was a really hot day. It was like 90 degrees that day. He said, do you mind if I go under your awning and pray? And I'm going, wow, this guy's serious about this stuff. And so he took out his prayer mat and here sitting in front of a, of a Christian church, he puts his prayer mat, heads it toward Mecca and, and prays for a few minutes and then he's gone. And he does that several times a day. Devout Muslims do that. But that's not just a Muslim thing. See, in the Old Testament, it was the people of God that did that. It was God's people that did that. Daniel did that. And, and we read, and, and we read uh, other places as well. In Psalm 119, 164, it says this in that verse that's up there at the top. Seven times a day I praise you. Who was that? David. King David. King David. Now, do you think anybody was busy? Think he was busier than you? Probably so. He, he, he spent seven times a day he would focus his attention upon God. Regular times of getting with God. Psalm 92 says, It is good to praise the Lord to proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. Uh, Psalm 55, Every morning and noon, every evening, morning and noon, I cry out to you in distress and he hears my voice. David had a regular process Multiple times of day, just carving out small, little, I call them mini Sabbaths in his day of being with God. It wasn't long periods of time. It might be five minutes. It might be ten. It might be just a short period of time. It wasn't about going to ask God for something. It was just being with God. This is a practice that's been around for ages, for eternity. And for some reason in the Christian church today, in the, in the Protestant Christian church, we've lost this, this concept. And I began to understand, you know, it's like I said, if, I, if somebody came, if you came to me and you was having marital problems and I told you to spend this just first 15 minutes of the day with your spouse, would I tell you to do that? I hope not. And I hope you wouldn't listen to me. 
No, I would say, you know, one of the problems is, is you're all you're doing it probably, I'll tell you what's most, most likely happens when people are having marital problems. They don't communicate, number one. But the reason they don't communicate is they don't spend any time with each other. They're always busy and two, they're living two separate lives, going in two separate directions, and they don't have any focus, no attention. If you really want to develop a good relationship with a spouse, you have to spend quality and quantity time with them. Not just a little bit here and a little bit here. You get to have a special, regular time. Any good marriage counselor will tell you that. And if you want to love God... And you want to be connected to God, the first thing you have to do is you have to carve out some time with him every day. Now, I want to tell you, with the, there's two elements. There's two elements of, of, this, uh, of this daily office. And if you want some help in, in developing the process of doing that, sometimes you just got to start small. Maybe just, just add one a day to your, to your list and then, then try two. But there's a book in the, there's a little book called The Daily Office that we've been uh, se- selling in the, in the lobby. And it's just a way of getting you started to think about it. It's not like a long devotional book. Basically, it only took to take you five minutes to do what it says to do. Well, two minutes to, to focus and get calmed down, uh, about two or three minutes to read scripture and a couple, of, a couple of things at two minutes to be quiet again. That's all it takes. But it gets you into a regular habit of thinking about God. It makes you stop. And you're going like, well, I couldn't do that at work. They'll get, well, let me explain something to you. Do you know any Muslims that work? Does the work deal with it, with, allow them to, do, to get, get with God? Yeah, they do. Don't make an excuse and say you can't do it. Because you can't. I can, you can. I know. Well, I'm, I'm at church. Yeah, I can do it all the time. I can just sit, you know, pray all day. But let me explain something to you. God, you know, if, if you're serious about doing this, you can make a way to do it. About being with God. And we need, I, I'll tell you, in the last few weeks, as, as I've been reading through, using the daily office book, all it has is just two times a day. It has, you know, you just choose either morning, noon, or morning, evening, or evening, uh, noon, later on. You just choose. But spending an extra time a day with God. And it's only a very brief time has helped me to focus my attention so much more on God. You're going, but you're a pastor. You're always thinking. No, I'm not always thinking about God. I have people to think about, you know. You guys show up and you, you, you have issues. Just like I have issues. And so I help you deal with them. And, and that takes, and I'll have administrative tasks and things like that. Just because I work in a church doesn't mean I think about God all the time. And if you really want to calm your life down and get a rhythm in life, you need to set some times to be with God in your life. And so that's the first, that's the first thing. But two key elements of daily office is this. There's two things. Scripture and stopping for silence and stillness. Man, would it make a difference in your life if you just kind of stopped and just try to clear your mind of the clutter of everything? Just for a couple of minutes, a couple of times a day. And then just read maybe a verse of scripture and say, hey God, what does that tell me about you? And you're going like, well, I live, you know, my house is chaotic or, or my office is kind of, let me give you an example. Um, there was a lady named Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley was married. I never can remember if it was John Wesley or Charles Wesley, the two Wesley brothers that started the Methodist church many, 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 many years ago. But one of the, he, she was the wife of one of the two of them, okay? She had like 10 kids. This was in the day when, you know, pretty much everybody, all their kids were there. They were running around like crazy. And Susanna Wesley found ways during the day of stopping at multiple times during the day to be with God in the midst of the chaos of raising 10 kids. You know what she did? 
in the middle of a small house with 10 kids running around. She would sit down in a chair and she had, she wore, you know, she wore the long dress and the apron and everything, a long apron. And, so, and she would teach her kids this. Kids, when mom pulls her apron over her head, that's her time with God. Susanna Wesley would sit in the chair, pull her apron over her head, and for, for five minutes would just be quiet with God in the midst of the chaos of the world around her. Now, I don't know if you have an apron you need to pull over your head or not, but, but the issue is, is that it can be done. It can be done. And let me tell you what's going to happen when you start trying to be quiet for two minutes. And you've never done it before. Everything in the world will come to your mind. You'll start thinking about all kind of junk. You know why? Because your mind is so so programmed to think, 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 and not just be calm. It may take you a while, several tries to get it to where you could even be quiet for a couple of minutes and be calm for a couple of minutes in the midst of the chaos of your life. But let me share with you, and this is from my own personal experience, and it took me a long time to do this, and I still struggle with it from time to time. It's worth it because when it does, it gives you a renewed focus. When you be still before God, then open his word, read a verse or two, and then ask God, okay, what does it tell me about you? What do you want me to learn about who you are, God? And then still again, and then go on with my day. When I carve out those small moments, those offices, those daily offices, those daily times where God can work in my life, it makes a huge difference. In my life. Now, the second thing is this. The second thing is this, and I don't have a whole lot of time to deal with this one because I took so much time on the first one. But this is the second, the second thing is we not only need daily rhythms, but we need weekly rhythms. We need weekly rhythms. And guess what? This is not something that's even a suggestion in scripture. This is a command. It's called the Sabbath. It's called the Sabbath. And so often, you know what the Sabbath means? It refers to a 24-hour period in our lives each week that we spend focusing just on a few things. And I'll give you quickly what those four things are that he wants to be a part of a Sabbath. As a matter of fact, it's a command. Remember the Ten Commandments, the Ten Biggies that God gave to Moses as he went up to the mountain? Number four of those ten is this one. Remember the Sabbath by day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord our God. On it you shall not do any work. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is a command, not a suggestion. And so often people have taken this and perverted it because they become legalistic about it, about what day of the week is it. Now, well, let me tell you, it's a 24-hour period in your life that you carve out to not work. And you, you spend time doing, <coughs> excuse me, four things. The first thing is that you stop. You stop working for 24 you go like I just can't do that cuz you don't if I stop working I will get behind and everybody else is going to rush ahead on the ladder of success and I will be behind let me say, let me say something about the sabbath the first thing is this it is a, a a thing about trusting god do you trust god do you believe that god has your best interest in mind if he is your lord and he is my lord and he is my savior and lord means he is the master of who I am can I trust him when he gives me a command that what he's, it's look it's out for my best. 
I love the story years ago uh, that was told, true story, about uh, a wagon train of Christians traveling on their way from back then St. Louis, which was the edge of the frontier, to Oregon. They were traveling on their, on their way. This is a bunch of Christians. And they observed the habit of stopping for the Sabbath during the autumn. But as winter approached, the group began to panic and fear that they would not reach their destination before the snows came. And they had this argument between the group. There was two groups in the wagon train. Some of them said, we need to forge on because if we get stuck in the middle of the winter here, you know, in the, in the, in the mountains and, and places we are, we'll die. But another group says, no, we need to trust God and we need to trust his plan for our life and we need to stop on the Sabbath. And so what they decided to do was this. They decided to divide into two groups. One group to forge ahead, not to stop for Sabbath. The other group to stop on the Sabbath and rest. Which group do you think arrived in Oregon first? The group that rested. Because that day of rest replenished them. It replenished their animals. It replenished every. It gave them a day to recuperate from the, the rigors of travel and going through life. And so they could travel the most effectively and most efficiently the remainder six days of the week because they spent one day resting. God has made us as people that need rhythms in our life. And we were to sleep every night, but once a week we're to have a period where we stop from our work. God didn't have to stop from his work because he was tired, did he? Does God get tired? It says on the, seven, on the six days he created and on the seventh day he stopped. Not because he was tired, but because he wanted to give us a pattern, a rhythm to understand this is what we need to do. So you stop. Secondly, you need to rest. You see, our culture knows nothing of setting aside 24 hours to stop to rest for God. And, and the core issue of the Sabbath, like I said, is trusting God. It's realizing this, that you and I have limits. The gift of limits is something that so often we simply don't understand. And so we just keep forging on and forging on and for, and we work and work and work and work. And then we just are exhausted. And we have, in our day and age, we have more depression, more, uh, more, all, more all kind of physical things that come from this overwork and over fatigue. And we think we can do it all. And our culture, the great beast, says, yeah, you know, you can have it all, you can do it all. I think one of the dumbest things I've ever heard is somebody that tells a kid, you can be anything you want to be. No, you can't. You know, let me give you an example. If five of you wanted to be the president in, in the year 2012, is that possible? If you can be anything you want to be and you worked as hard as you could and you could do it, no, you can't do it. There's limitations because there's so, only so many positions, for one thing, but also it's just not who it is. God says, I want you to be who I want you to be. That's what we need to encourage our kids to be. It's who God made them to be. And to discover who that is. So secondly, the reason we need rest is because we need some time to stop and, and just rest and, and recuperate and, and rejuvenate. It's, it's, a, it's not a time to do our to-do list of stuff we didn't do during the week. It's a time to rest. Thirdly, we need to delight. We need to delight. And you're going like, what's that mean? We need to delight in life. We need to delight in creation and her gifts and her food and people and music and playfulness and nature. Some of you are missing out on life. You're just busy, busy, busy all the time. You never notice anything that's going on. 
When I slow down and when I stop, I start noticing things that I never noticed before. And you know that to be a fact. When life doesn't pass you by and it's crazy, and we delight in things. We start, you know, enjoying people. I mean, I love Fridays now. Each Friday, um, our grandson comes over. He's, he's 21, 21 months old now. Now, let me tell you, if I didn't stop on Fridays and spend some time with my grandson, I'd probably just go through life and, you know, I'd, I'd appreciate him when I saw him for an hour here or an hour there. But I get to delight in him. It's because I spend time focusing just on him. Do the same thing with my wife. We, we date still after 30 years of marriage. We spend time together. We're best friends. You have to delight in the things. And the only way you'll do that is if you have to stop and rest and delight. And the fourth thing is this. The fourth thing God wants us to do on the Sabbath is this. We need to contemplate. And you're going like, that's a big word. You know what contemplation is? Focused thinking. Focused thinking. One of the things that's it's part of the thing is that you come to church for is so you'll focus your thinking on God. Right? Sure. Is this the only time we're supposed to have focused thinking on God? No. But when you carve out that time, I would encourage you, whatever your cult, your tradition is to have focused thinking on God. Part of the time of the Sabbath is so we can stop, we can rest, we can delight in, in people, in creation, in God. And restore our relationship with Him. You see, God invites us to grab a hold of the rope. And the rope he wants us to hold on to, and the, one of the ropes that he gives us to keep connected with him is a couple of spiritual disciplines. One, daily times with him, daily offices, daily works of God in our life. We carve out those little mini Sabbaths in our life. And, and then every week, every week, a Sabbath, a 24-hour period where we spend time with God we spend time enjoying what God has created. We rest from our work and we are refreshed and renewed so that we can live life more fully the rest of the time for God. What will happen in our lives if we don't grab a hold of these ropes that he gives us is that when crisis comes, we'll have nothing to hold on to. We won't know God. He'll be like a distant relative that we only see every once in a while. It's the close personal friend that we've spent time with on a regular basis. So two practical steps. Number one, you need to decide you want to keep the Sabbath and you, need to, and you want to take time with God on a daily basis. You just have to decide that. And secondly, you need to establish a precise, deliberate beginning an end to your Sabbath and to your daily times with Him. Set a rhythm in your life so it'll be done. Begin to practice it. And watch God change the way you relate to Him. And even the way you live life fully. The way He created you to be. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakcc.org.